Green and I think the two of them were doing, I mean, they looked cheerful and good, but um, Megan had a relapse, a pretty serious. After last class when we prayed for them, that I saw Tom the next day at the wreck, and he said she was doing really well, that she recover. And um, I don't know if she was in a rehab place, but anyway, sounded really glad and grateful and saw him last night and the two of them just looked heavy that things had gotten. So the way we have to struggle back to God, all of us, and it's amazing how much we do it through others sometimes, you know, it's, it's like we don't come to the love we're called to enough in ourselves and sometimes involves the suffering of others. It's a gift to us and a tough one. Let's start. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your presence within us. What a great trust, a great love. Um, the measure of it is the cross. You offer your life to us. We carry you inside of us, one with our own being in some ways have to endure the cross all over again within us. Maybe it's our share of the cross um, because of our own sins and the sins we carry of each other. Strengthen us to bear you. Um, help make us whole, each one of us, so that we can bring you your light, your truth, um, your love, your justice, your mercy to everything we do. No, don't be sorry. Come. I've been waiting for you. It's not the same class when you're not here. Um, what a great trust in us um, to offer yourself to us again, even in our lowliness, the mistakes we make, the foolish things we do, the pride that so often hurts us and others. Let us all be strengthened with your presence within us, um, and particularly now in this season of Advent, to take seriously a call to uh, make renunciations, to give things up, genuinely, all those things, that food, drink, sex, things, things of the world. Um, help us um, to fast, uh, but not in sorrow, not as in Lent, in a spirit of waiting and joy, to learn to put ourselves away, to be with you, so that when, he, um, when Christmas comes, um, the joy will be greater. Let that be for all of us. I ask a blessing on all of us and the work that we're doing here. Um, help us to take it to the world, to make it real in our lives. I ask a special blessing on, on Matt. 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 Um, <coughs> impossible for any of us um, um, to get over tearing moments. The wounds are left, the scars are left long after the wound takes place. E even as we heal, um, be with Matt, um, strengthen him in his trust in you. Let, let all of his losses be an occasion for turning to you more fully. Let it be so for 
um, Debbie and John, is it? Bruce. You're, Bruce, Bruce, sorry, Bruce. It's okay. Debbie and Bruce, um, um, let all of them see that this is an occasion for growing closer to you. Whatever happens, our trust is in you, even if it waits till after the grave for any of us. Strengthen us in our faith, um, help deepen our love, all of us. I ask a special blessing on Megan. Megan, um, cure her, please. Heal her. Um, help her in the depths of her pain to get past it, um, to find you and place her hope in you. Um, if it needs a miracle, let a miracle take place. Um, let no harm come to her, particularly from herself. Um, let a help come to her. Um, Dr. Tracy's through it. It's, it's, Madison. Huh? Madison. Madison. <coughs> Be with Madison the same. Um, and she has no reason to live. Give her a reason. Um, um, and be with Tracy in her struggles to try to help her. Um, we so often think about the poor in other lands when the poverty around us is great, very often in our own family. Um, poverty doesn't mean material things always. It means not having you, the greatest poverty of all. Blessed are the, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit kingdom? Is that the beatitude? The poverty there means being without you. Um, how hard it is for people to um, go on without you. Help give these girls a reason for living and help those who are trying to help them. Ask for a special blessing on Krista and Kayla and their kids, particularly Sienna. Strengthen in them a spirit of humility that they can begin to love each other in humility um, once again. We offer these prayers um, in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, so I mentioned the, the, um, the possible change in in reading that we might do. Um, it's funny, I, um, I don't know if you were here this last weekend, Father gave a homily on, on Milton's Paradise Lost, and it obviously has meant a lot to him, and it struck me that it, it might be a good thing to do for all the reasons he mentioned, except to see more deeply what's at issue here. So I went and asked him what he thought about doing Paradise Lost and the Divine Comedy together. So. I'm seriously thinking about doing the two of them in the fall. We'd, to begin with Paradise Lost and four or five weeks on it and then do Dante in six weeks. I know a lot of people have already done Dante, but it, even if you have, it's always good to go over it because it's so... If you do, the, 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 one of the interesting truths about Paradise Lost is the language is one of the hardest in the English language because Milton knew six or seven languages. And the syntax reflects different languages that are different syntactically from English. 
So the complexity of his line is tremendous. It's just a very hard line. Milton's line, poetry is be- very beautiful, but it's a tough line. And the story, <clears throat> the story is very simple. I mean, a child could read the story. Dante's language is very simple, and the story couldn't be more complex. I mean, that's one of the differences at issue between the Protestant mind and um, and the the Catholic, there's just a great, great complexity. So I thought, I'm thinking about starting with Paradise Lost and looking at Milton, what he's doing, and then doing Dante. We'll see. (coughs) Uh, But we're going to stay with Faulkner after the year and then finish with Till We Have Faces this spring. So let's do um, the fourth section of uh, East Coast. Just a very, very brief word on this section. Remember through Burton Norton and East Coker, Elliot has been dealing principally with this theme of the still point, this, this point of intersection between time and the timeless. And we went through a number of things in Burton Norton. In East Coker, one of the governing motifs, we can call it that, is the cyclical nature of things. Everything in nature is cyclical, right? Things come into being, they pass away. Um, it's, as if he, it's as if he took it right out of Ecclesiastic. The rhythms, the images, all talk about things coming into being, passing away. If that's so, then there's no still point. We're in Heraclitus's world, Plato's world of, of um, cyclical repetitions, reincarnation even. But if you read this closely, you'll see that Eliot's while he's on the surface describing that cyclical nature of things, that pattern, he's doing it in a way that makes us aware that there is a, there is a point of intersection involving even that. So, for example, um, remember he starts, in my beginning is my end. He will repeat that a number of times. And in the very end of the book, that chapter, this quartet, he'll close, in my end is my beginning. And he ties them together. Now, just stop and think for a second. In my beginning is my end. If the two are connected, beginning and end, in my beginning is my end, they connect. It means implied in, in my beginning is my end, is a still point. The source of everything, the end of everything, are the same. Right? So even that line implies a still point. All right? The source, the origins, and the end, in my, if, they're, if, if it's true, he's saying, in my beginning is my end, then they're there. And obviously that's the Alpha and the Omega, that's God. The beginning, the end, is him. And for our purposes, it's Christ, who's the one, who God, who entered time. That's still point. So he has these images, in succession, houses rise and fall, crumble or extended or removed. He goes on, old fires to ashes ashes to the earth, which is already flesh. Things die, they go to the earth. Out of the earth comes life. So he continually gives us these images of the cyclical nature to things. In the second section, it has that wonderful description of the marriage. And, and in a way that's very subtle, 
he slips into it um, subtly, gently, by changing his language from modern English to Middle English. So there is a change. You know, there's our origins, that's our language, it was once, it is not, it not, and yet they both serve the same purpose. He's describing this marriage. The association of man and woman in Don Signia signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessary conjunction, holding each other by the hand or the arm, which it betokeneth concord round and round the fire. He goes into it now as a wheel or a cyclical nature that goes back to beginnings and an end. Um, so even subtly, in a way, he's doing the same thing there. And remember, if in my beginning is my end is true, then one of the questions that follows from that, the truth of that is, where are we at any point? And we've talked about that, and I've, I've tried to relate it to the Eucharist. If we take Christ into us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and we're here, but on our way to Christ, where are we? We tend to get very literalistic in saying, I'm here, but where is that here? And he plays with that notion constantly. At the end of the first section, he, he, he gives these lines, Don points, Don points, where? To what? The sun is here, pointing to what? And another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. And notice how that's left open-ended. <clears throat> in my beginning, but going where? The second section gives an image that illustrates the truth of what I'm talking about. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer's heat? We all know that during any season, there are moments when we're out of that season, midwinter, spring, or um, Indian summer, that while we're in the middle of one thing on a cyclical pattern going somewhere, something from another season intersects that time. And, it, and Eliot uses that to remind, to, as a way of playing with that image. If that other thing is there, where is it? And where are we in the cycle of seasons? He does it here in, in the second section, what is the late November doing? Little Gidding, <clears throat> the very last quartet, he does the same thing with midwinter spring, except there I think he, he, had a, he had an insight here. What he does with that insight then to me blows me away. It's just, to me it's stunning. We'll, we'll see when we get there. Um, <coughs> He talks about in the in the second place, or I mean the second. Um, again, words and the difficulty of using words to describe what's there, particularly if what's there keeps shifting. He talks about the wisdom of old men and makes it clear. Again, cyclical. We think because we get older, the older we get, the wiser we are. We sort of take that posture. You know, when I talk with my grandchildren, I, I, and I say this, I'm being a little bit ironic here, but. When I talk with our grandchildren, I'm aware that I can speak with a voice my son can't. He's just too young. You know, they'll hear something different from me. They'll hear a gravity for sure. Um, and I think the kids hear it, our grandchildren. 
and I'm half, I'm half aware that I have a wisdom they don't have, and they'll listen to me. I mean, I, if I get serious with them, we'll talk about We've talked about the Trinity, demons. I mean, for me, there's nothing off limits. When, you're, when something comes up, I'm glad to have that time with our grandchildren. I want them to see things. I think I told you this. They love, whenever they come to our house, they want bedtime stories. They, going to bed without me telling them the story breaks a ritual. And I think I've told you when I tell stories, there are always horrible things going on. Heads getting sliced off, blood dripping, eyeballs coming out. And then I thought about this the other day. I thought about this the other day. Emily and Jonathan, Emily and Jonathan make such a point. I mean, they, 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 they're clear that they don't want our grandchildren watching certain movies at our house. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, like I was thinking about playing the bat. One of the Batman. Some of them I think would be inappropriate. I don't mind violence, and I, I believe that it's good for the kids to see it because they're already aware of it unconsciously. But in the hollows of their souls, kids know it long before they can ever articulate it. But I thought, how ironic, because they don't, they don't want kids watching some of these movies. <laughs> I tell them R-rated stories every night before they go to bed. But there's always a sanctuary. Yeah, I mean that's that's a principle. I will never, I will never tell a story where there's violence and not have it answered. I, I, if I hate movies that show evil surviving, not answered. That's a movie I despise because it encourages people to believe that. Evil's greater than God or co-eternal or, you know. If something bad happens in the stories I tell, it's always going to be answered. The kids can go to bed peacefully. They always do. Um, anyway, he, he talks about the wisdom of old men and then ends saying, Do not let me hear the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear of frenzy, their fear of possession of belonging to another, or to others, or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea, the dancers are all gone under the hill. So the end of the second section ends darkly. We don't, it's not time for living or time for dying, it's they all go under the sea, they all, that is, that's an image of death and decline. And he leaves it that way. And the third section begins, oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. Then we go into this darker view. Remember, we read that. I don't want to go through it. But it ends with that one of those mystical expressions that I touched on a minute ago of not knowing completely where we are. If we were, if we were really truthful about ourselves, we'd know. We'd, we 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 should not have the certainty that we think we do about things here on earth. It's Plato's cave. We think we have the answers when, as a matter of fact, we don't. Where are we? I mean, I know we're physically here, that's real. But spiritually, mystically, where are we? So he ends um, questioning the wisdom of old men and then describes this. You, after he um, talks about this emptiness, the darkness that we go into, you say, I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, which means somehow we're not there yet, here, 
To right where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. This cannot be euphoria, or what's the Protestant, the, 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 rap, the rapture. What he's talking about is a way of discipline. <coughs> the, the purgation, really, purgatory. In order to drive away you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of disposition. I love one of the, what's the, I just, blessed are those who, are the, who inherit the earth. The, huh, the meek? One of, one of, blessed are those you inherit the earth. The, the, one of the, I think it's that one, the, the sense is, if, we, if we're meek and we give up everything, what in the world isn't ours? Let me put it differently. Isn't it true that when we possess something, I want this, that suddenly everything else disappears? That our preoccupation to have this thing keeps us from being one with everything in the world. That possessiveness can rob us. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Is that the one? To give up everything means... We gain everything, then it's all ours because the way we stand in it is in love. So he ends with all of these beautiful paradoxes about where we are, um, thinking we're here and not here and going to a place where we are. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. If we're to become something, how how can we get to that without becoming something other than what we are? If our end is Christ, how do we get there without putting Christ on to something other, right? So, in order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know, and what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Now, lots of people probably think that's gibberish. If you think about it in terms of the relation between a physical world and a eternal, the still point, that intersection, every one of those things makes absolute sense. They're, the paradoxes are a perfect description of, of the paradoxical mystery that, that we live in to the extent that we live between, at that still point, connecting this world to eternity. So the fourth section, now just a brief word, and then I'd like to get to Faulkner. The fourth section continues the, the, the darkness that we've entered in the third section. And all of it is a reminder of our fall. And I can't say this strongly enough. And of all those things in the world that enable. If you thought about the world seriously at all, you'd, you'd say there's almost nothing in the world that does not enable. The only way we get free of it is in eternity. Um, and he ends, um, after he gives these descriptions of the fallen character of our existence here on earth, with an indirect allusion to the Eucharist, to the blood and um, body that we take in, and the crucifixion. So in the, the only answer the church offers, ultimately, is the cross. The world does everything it can to get us off the cross. It wants to make us comfortable. It wants to make us well. You know, we're asked to go to a cross and die. And so these two things are at odds. 
Okay. So here again, he continues this dark, this dark picture, but at the end answers it. So <clears throat> remember, section two ended darkly. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dances are all gone under the hill. Section three ends with these um, mysterious, these puzzling paradoxes. Um, and where you are is where you are not. Um, here's section four. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, <coughs> resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease. If we obey the dying nurse, <coughs> whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire. Notice how everybody is wounded or hurt. The, the nurse is a dying nurse. Um, um, part of her job is to remind us that we're not well. And he's saying, if we're going to be restored, the sickness must grow worse. Um, we have to die to this world. The whole earth is our hospital endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein if we do well, we shall die of the absolute paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees, the fever sings in mental wires. If to be warm, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires, of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briar. Remember in the Imperium of Dante's heaven, the Imperium was a rose. It was the Imperium, that, that was the image. And Eliot's used that image of the rose right from the beginning. And the, the way of ascent is, um, is through purgatorial fires, that we have to have burned off those sins that are so much a part of us. And the smoke is briars, it's the thicket of the thorns, the, the crown of thorns that Christ. The dripping blood, our only drink, the bloody flesh, our only food, in spite of which we like to think that we are sound, substantial flesh and blood. Again, in spite of that, we call this Friday good. I think I told you one of the great insights I had um, early in our life when we got involved in this rehab center, when our kids were discovered that our kids were having drinking problems and we weren't even aware of it. And we were involved in this rehab program. They took off, Suzanne and I stayed. Um, it was an amazing experience for me. Um, and one of the things I took away from it that I'll never forget is realizing that it's the people who think they're okay that are the source of the greatest problems in the world. You know, because they just don't see. There's a, remember our call, our call as Christians is is daily to prepare to meet Christ. So it means doing everything we can to prepare for death because that's our end. We're not going to escape it. How much of us put that off day by day by day by day? You know, um, the church says memento mori, remember death. We're supposed to hold it, although because it's so often uncomfortable, we don't want to look there. But that's our end. I think that's the force of that, the end of that fourth section. Um, we're, we're, we should be preparing ourselves for death by giving things up.
It's part of our way of growing closer to Christ. Okay, very quickly, I'm going to skip a lot of the review because I want to get to the quotes today before we do. Don asked a question after last class. Everybody was gone, and and I, I don't remember the exact phrasing of it. It was something to the effect, Bob, do you do you not like the um, social contract theory, or do you disagree with it, or something like that? Correct me, Don, if I'm... And I thought about it afterwards, and I don't think I gave a good answer, and I want to just take a minute. I don't want to go into it, but I want to give an answer because it was important enough for him to ask, and, and I'm always sorry we don't have more time for discussions. Um, um, my, my direct answer to that is I, I do deeply, fundamentally disagree with it, and I'm disturbed by it as well. For one obvious reason, it's not because of the lawful nature of it, it's part of what's at issue in that contract is that there's almost nothing we do as human beings that isn't contractual. We make agreements and promises all the time because law is a part of our nature. The old, I've said this, the ultimate source of law is God. He's the root of it. So our use of reason implies a law in nature that there should, we can do some things, not others. And So contracts are good because they bind us. We've, together, we've looked at the dangers of law. Dante, Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Remember, the law can be deadly. can actually undo itself. Reason. One of the, one of the, one of the wonderful paradoxes about the nature of reason is reason is so great that it can destroy itself. We can give our reason, we can give ourselves a reason for no longer living. Truly. I think faith without reason is, a, to me, a horror. I, I hope everybody feels this. I try to do everything I can in my family, in the work that I've done as a teacher, to enlarge the field of reason. Because I think it's our greatest natural gift. What we can see with it. You also know my feelings about it, that it, it's the cause of so many of our harms. The way we use reason is awful at times. But I think it's important to enlarge it um, as much as we can because it's a given gift. But re reason by nature can also destroy itself. We call that skepticism, agnosticism. You can use reason to cut off reason. All right, you can use reason to kill yourself. So ultimately a reason that, that doesn't have support from faith can become destructive. So I don't object to laws, um, even though we use them badly. Um, I believe the ultimate source of laws is God. And I think you know from my own comments that I believe one of the problems, one of the reasons we're in the problems we're in is because we've lost a sense of the natural law tradition. We lose sense of that, we're losing sense of a certain kind of reason. Because law, law is a product of reason. So to lose contact with the natural law tradition means to lose contact with the vital energies, the light that we draw from reason. Okay? What I don't like about the social contract theory is that the whole thrust of it is to enlarge the powers of government. And we went over that, you know, that Hobbes believed we should give total power to the government. Rousseau, same. I mean, they came out with different theories, but the con social contract theory is basically the same. 
When we give absolute powers to a government, <coughs> we give up freedoms that we're meant to have, and it makes it easier for us not to take responsibility for our own actions. Entitlements grow, dependencies grow. So, it, and it seems to me, I don't want, I really don't want to get into a political thing here, but the, the, the it, historically we've seen this to be true. The governments, as, they, as their powers increase, become tyrannical, despotic, they become arbitrary. I believe we're, we've been living under a totalitarian form of government for the last 75 years. Um, <clears throat> Um, there are things the government has to do. I mean, we have, I believe, I'm not a libertarian. Father is. Uh, Father, I'm not a libertarian. I believe that we have to have government um, to go to war. There are some things the government should do. I don't think the government should take on um, dependencies and poverty. I think the government should delegate those responsibilities to communities so that people learn to take care of their own, not just their family, but their immediate community because it asks of them charity. When a government starts, here, this is, this is Aristotle. <coughs> By the way, this is Aristotle answering Plato. As governments increase and move in the direction of socialism, one of the virtues they give up is charity. If the government's gonna take care of anything, why do you have to do anything? That's one of Aristotle's criticisms of Plato's Republic. So it undermines love. We've seen this critique. We saw it in Shakespeare. We saw it in Dante. You know, that love gets weaker in this commercial regime. What have we been looking at in Faulkner's? People want to get ahead. They want to best somebody else. How well do they love? Not very well at all. So let me stop. So Don, my, my more direct, I mean, I thought about it afterwards, and that just was not a good answer, but... But I know you've been hearing negative things from me about the social contract, and I want to just make that clear. I think you can say that about anything. Anything can be perverted law. Uh, and atomic power can be used good uh, or for evil. Yeah. Uh, same thing with government. Uh, yes. Laws can be good, laws can be bad. Yeah. Um, I think the way uh, uh, government, this government was set up in the early days, the checks and balances uh, uh, to try to prevent government from becoming too powerful, but uh, over time, that's eroded. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with all of that. I, I wasn't speaking specifically to that. What I was speaking specifically to was the social contract theory. All things can be perverted. I, I hope there's no confusion about this. One of the major truths that I think we've taken out of this work together is Love itself can be perverted. From Dante, love is the cause of all wrongs. We love the wrong things the wrong way. There isn't anything in the world that can't be perverted, but I'm not speaking to that point. What I'm saying is the social contract theory, as I believe, as Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau put, put it forward, is inherently flawed from the beginning. It's not something that can become flawed it's flawed from the beginning because it wants to give absolute powers to a government. That's the nature of its theory. If you look at the American polity, exactly what you said, the American, the founding fathers understood the greatest danger to democracy. This is historically true. The greatest danger to democracy was the tyranny of the majority. 
When a greater number gets power in their hands, the bad things they can do with it. Enlarge the powers of a government so that they have greater powers, so that they're not representing the people, then you move towards an inherent, an inherent evil. The Founding Fathers were so aware of that that they did everything they could to offset that. If you read the Federalist Papers, Federalist, I think it's 10 or 11, I can't remember, speaks directly to that issue. The separation of powers was intended to curb powers. Um, the difference between the Senate and legislative branches was meant to do the same thing. Um, you've got a Senate that gives an equal number of votes per state when one state may have a hundred times the number of people in it and so be, be in a position to be overpower another state just by virtue of its numbers. They, so there isn't anything about this they didn't think out in terms of setting limits on government. The Electoral College had the same end. It's intended to offset a majority because they know if the majority, the popular vote, gets rule, what's going to happen? They, they did everything they could to establish tensions to, to, to work because they knew the tendency of men is to increase the powers of government. What's wrong with the social contract theory, as I've said it, is, is that it's inherently, in my mind, bad because the nature of it is to want to give government absolute powers. That's, that's, not the, that's not our understanding of the American polity. Our, the nature of our government is limited. Um, and if you, look at the, if you look at historically the regimes in the world, tribal, class, England's class, king, monarchies, um, governments take different forms. Um, but if you look at the world, I mean, there are either class systems or tribal systems and monarchies that are inhuman. And I and I, I already said this, so I don't want to go into it, but I, but I think I think um, we're we're watching we're watching our just one second, we're watching our government um, lose touch with its roots. Let me put it that way, if I can just put it that way. Don, go ahead. I think the Tocqueville said in Democracy in America that the democracy will end when the politicians realize that the people can be bribed with their own money. And I think, you know, that's pretty obvious today. Yeah. By the way, de Tocqueville's um, Democracy in America is one of the finest critiques of the American culture and polity that we have. It's a good book for everybody to read. Okay, I want to just very quickly look at a couple of things and then I want to do some, I want to read some quotes. The, the great theme of the, very quick summary, okay? The great theme of the phlegm section is um, this instinctive wanting to best another person, to get the better of another person, to get above another person through a contractual arrangement. And um, immediately we're thrown into that. <clears throat> Jody thinks he can get the better of Ab. Remember when Ab <coughs> comes to him asking to, to establish a contract so that he can rent a farm? Jody immediately thinks he's got this guy under his thumb. <laughs> we immediately see what an idiot he is. 
His father is much older and he's more shrewd. And he knows that that's a stupid thing to do. And he goes to Ratliff and the two, in that wise old way that two older men have, know exactly what's going on and talk about it. And we, we get um, an elaboration on that fact in the Ab Snopes stamp, Pat Stamper story. Remember when Ab wanted to um, get a, out of revenge, he wanted to get back because he was humiliated by Stamper once. So he takes the horse and sells it and, and, and or, or changes, exchanges it for what he thinks is a better one. On the way back, he realizes that it's worse and, and then he gets screwed more because he loses the, the milk separator that his wife wanted and the cow. God. So it's showing how stupid men are in, in, this, in, this, in this honor code that men live by. Um, and, and remember how, how, if those of you did the Iliad, remember that was at the center of the Iliad, the, the sense of honor, of, of, of getting a prize for showing that you're better than somebody else. It all started with Paris taking Helen, dishonoring the home. The men had to, to avenge that act. They go to Troy to, a war takes place. And then what happens is 10 years of, ta of taking booty. That war will never end because they're caught in this world of, of proving how good they are and the rewards. Is our world any different? Go to work, get a job, um, look for a better job, um, and then CEOs competing with each other or somebody wanting to get more, so leaving a job where he gets better pay. Our world is driven by wanting to have more money than another. You can't read the sports pages today, the, uh, you know, without one athlete resenting the fact that he's losing has to find a team where if he gets enough good players on it, he can win, or one athlete getting more money than he gets, and so wanting more. So everything about our economy drives wages up, payment, makes it harder to live, <laughs> and now women have entered into that world and are part of it. So in the phlegm section, we're given this image of these men who are caught with this sense of honor and the embarrassment they're left with if they're bested by another man. And it's all comically done, but we know by the end of it that it begins to get dark because we're watching the Snopes spread. They're gradually taking over. So we're watching an agrarian communal way of life disappear. It's being taken over by this self-interested instinct to, to rise, to get ahead. The Eula section deals with um, Eula, this extraordinarily beautiful sexual creature who arouses lust, yes. <laughs> and in that sense, for me, she's representative because, I, I mean, I, you know, I think about, I've said this before, somebody like Sophia Loren or Gina Lola Bridget or who, but we don't have to go, all you have to do is turn on the television today to, to if you turn, I, do, I hate the wrestling set, if you turn on the wrestling match, every round shows this beautiful girl with her boobs coming out of her, you know, carrying up a sign, walking to show herself. You never see a car advertisement practically without some beautiful woman leaning on it or... The tabloids are full of this stuff. Um, you can't go anywhere in our world without seeing the celebrity culture and at the center of it, beautiful women. They are far more magnetic than heroic men. Um, I'd said from the, remember from the Iliad and the Odyssey, I, I, I think Odysseus, I mean Homer saw this already from the beginning. 
Calypso, Circe, you know, all the feminine archetypes are there. The beauty, if you leave a man and a woman alone, there's no way a man can... It's almost impossible, let me put it that way, it's almost impossible for a man to keep his own in the presence of the beauty of a woman. That's how overpowering. And I'm saying that, trusting that you all know that so much of it's subliminal. Why, how else does this stuff on television work? Um, and I'd also go out on a limb here to say that most of us, I'd say, no matter how good we are, when we first enter marriage, there's more lust in our character than we want to admit. That being married sort of trains us out of it, I mean, if you know what I mean. You know, you, you, you learn as you, you know, more restraint and, and, and from more suffering, the things you've got to do to hold on to things. So St. Augustine was the one who, who said, I think I said this to you, the first child is always more a product of lust and, and it shows it in so many ways. So, in the Eula figure, Faulkner's making us aware of this by her effect on a community, and particularly the men, um, and all that happens. Um, and it's important to give it the magnitude that he does, because if we don't, then we're going to miss the importance of what happens at the end. And that is that, remember, she gets pregnant by McCarran, and um, sure enough, immediately afterwards, we see Eula and Varner and Flem on the way to the courthouse to get married that um, he used her and Varner sold out. So the, so the great theme of the Eula section is that this beautiful woman, she's an image of so much that's sexual that, are, that arouses men, and, and none of the men wanted to marry her. <laughs> um, and the LaBeouf section of the story made that clear from another perspective. So it's not just the low types, it's an it's a intellectual educated who, who cannot resist the... And if, if you're paying attention to the news today with all this sexual harassment stuff and all the men being held accountable for what's... I mean, something awful is, something awful is really happening. And I, don't, I personally don't believe it's just the men. The women are implicated in this everywhere. Um, but it's, it's just showing that... Um, well, too much to go in here, but but it, it, it makes it obvious that... I have to make one comment. Um, I was watching the news the other day, and it's um, Channel 4 or whatever it was. It was morning news, and they celebrate birthdays. And there was, um, you know, the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds and four There was a little five-year-old girl, and it was her birthday. Picture was like, oh, yeah, she's five. Yeah. Oh, no, five. And I thought, yeah, there's that covers in tiaras show, yes, and it was two three year olds being created in costumes and makeup, and huge hair, and really, I mean, they're three years old, but these skin tea, yep, 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 yep. What really disturbed me about this, this was some little five year old girl, just she wasn't toddlers and tiaras, it wasn't a show. It was a picture Bird. of her yeah. that her parents had put on for, to celebrate her birthday. Yeah. And I'm thinking, this is, there's, you know, a five-year-old. When a couple of years ago, I, I, I should not have, should have put the brakes on this then. <laughs> um, when the movie Frozen, 
think it came out. Um, and and people were watching it innocently again. I mean, it's like watching the Hamlet, you know, with everybody innocently sort of watching what's going on and not doing anything about it. What struck me about the singing that these young sisters or whatever they were, I can't, but was that everything they did was in the form of a celebrity, a Hollywood celebrity. The gestures, the song, the sentiments, the emotion. I mean, early on, our, our kids, I, and I, for, me, it's, for me, it's particularly troubling with girls, because I think girls are so much more emotionally susceptible, it's my personal belief. And, um, and the ideal is beauty and some celebrity. And if you look at the world of Hollywood, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And yet everything, everything draws our culture there. And you know, if you're a young girl who's pretty or, or attractive, and the susceptibility's got to be greater. And then what's going to happen in the meantime at, at that five-year-old point? Oh, that, that's you know, absolutely right. Um, anyway, I just, let's not, Eula is an image of femininity and all that it exudes and its effect on men. And um, I think the way we're intended to see that chapter is that it's a sellout. The major theme is that what we saw in the first chapter between the men, Ab, and, or Jody and Ab, and then, and then Flem and everybody else, Ab and Pat Stamper, and then the, the Snopes beginning to multiply. We see up close and enlarged in everything that happens with Eula because she sacrificed to that way, that honor code um, and the male vanity behind it. She's sold. So to me, it, there's a betrayal. Ratliff is angry at the end, um, not openly so, but it seems to me when we begin the long summer, he's visibly anger and then we're on our way. So a couple of a couple of general things to note about this before we look at the long summer. It's clear it's really clear. I can't read Faulkner anymore without seeing that he's read Joseph Conrad and Dostoevsky and Dickens. I can just find them everywhere. Ratliff's like a Marlowe. If any of you know Joseph Conrad, you know the Marlowe figures this figure who's outside things, telling stories. The difference is this, and it's to Faulkner's credit, I believe. I can't recall Marlowe learning much. He's always outside of observing. Ratliff's learning and making mistakes. And I think it's to his credit because every mistake he makes makes him better. He's not going to stop. By the time you get to the town, you're going to see Ratliff far more involved in everything that's going on. And when you get to the mansion, even more so. So one of the great themes, is, as I've said, is God putting this house in order. You will see God in this finally, even if it's going to take a while to get there. God putting his house in order. It's about the South learning to take responsibility for evil. To not sit back in that agrarian innocence and let it happen, which is what we see in the beginning. Yeah? The South is learning to take responsibility for evil in the world and answer it. So it's about the South growing up. Those are its major themes. The sub-theme to this, and actually the center, the one who conducts the whole thing, is Ratliff. And in one say we can say this whole series is about Ratliff growing up. 
and what, what he does, and, and eventually what this community does when it unites together. That's in the, ha- or I mean the mansion, we'll see it then. But we're getting, we're getting the beginnings of it now. Um, in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov murders a pawnbroker. It's all about a man thinking he can, he can do whatever he wants. There's no God, and because there's no God, there's no reason not to murder. That's the modern ideology. It's Machiavellian. There, if there's no God, there's no reason. You can't kill a person if it serves a better end. The ends justify the means. All right? So if your means is order, you want to keep peace, and to do that, you have to kill somebody, it's justified doing that. That's the modern mind. Raskolnikov going to kill somebody, but he meets this prostitute. It's a prostitute again, the lowly. And they love each other, and at some point, his guilt so overwhelms him that he almost falls apart. I mean, he just loses it everywhere. And Sonia tells him late in the novel to go to the crossroads, lay down, to confess his sin, and kiss the earth. It's a touching moment in the book he does, and he will be taken to jail and serve out his time. That's go- something like that is going to happen here. We get a wind of it in the in the in the in the long summer section when Houston or Mink kills Houston. But Faulkner looks at the lowly people. His preoccupation is not with the established, not with the bourgeois Christian world, because it's disintegrating. We saw that in Sound of the Fury. We got some wind of that in Go Down Moses because the Edmonds, remember, they own the farm. They're the ones who are perpetuating the crimes. Faulkner's going outside of that world to show us a world that hasn't been corrupted or spoiled and focuses on that. <coughs> the major theme of the long summer is um, this tension between love and this mercantile social contract tension that exists between men. And we see that played out in a number of ways. The, in the, on one side, we see Ike wooing the cow. And it's sort of laughable, um, but it, in one sense, it's not because Ike is showing us what, what everybody else has forgotten how to do, how to love. And um, um, let me wait, because I want to go through that in a minute, because to me it's so extraordinary. But it seems to me that that's, that's a, one of the major themes. The other is the, the, the way in which the men continue to play each other off. Mink is going to kill Houston because he's so humiliated by the outcome of that court scene. He kills him, and then he buries him. Lump comes into the picture because he knows that Mink killed Houston, and he knows from the transaction that took place in the story that, that Houston's got a $50 bill in his pocket. He wants to unbury the body to get the $50 bill. His only concern is money. When Houston finds Ike with a cow, he takes the cow back and he flips him a coin. If that were an ordinary, it's an idiot, Ike's an idiot. If it were an ordinary man, he would have taken offense at him because he would have been buying him off. Ike's an idiot. He doesn't know any better. But we know what Houston's doing. There's that trade-off again. The the demeaning of love. Um, Every one of the women in this story are fiercely loyal in their loves. Lucy Pate tries to do everything she can to get Houston through school and marry him. He runs away. 
he encounters this woman in a prostitute in a brothel. They come together after, I think, seven years of being together, um, a, a nominal marriage. He finally does what he knew he'd do all along, goes back, and he's going to leave the woman. She says, take me with you. I'll live in town where you can come. She makes herself a bit, she does, the, the loyalty of the women, it reminds me of the women of the cross. I mean, to my knowledge, it was only John. All the other men were gone. It was the women who were there. These women are fiercely loyal to the men. She says, take me with you. When Ike goes to get the gun, Ike's wife says, don't do it, I'm going to leave. She leaves. Hi. Or Mink, Mink. sorry, Mink. Um, and then after he meets up with Lump, when Lump comes to get him, Lump says, your wife wants to see you. He goes to Varner and she comes out and then we get that long interlude talking about um, Mink's wife and um, how fierce she is. And then after that interlude, there's that um, exchange between them. I want to read it because it's so touching where she says, I hate, I hate you, I hate you. Why didn't you leave? She left him trusting that her leaving him would make him run away because she didn't want to see him die. She's furious with him. She says, why didn't you leave? You leave. Then she, I mean, this is conscious. You can picture this, and I don't know why a movie hasn't been made of the trilogy. It just stuns me. You can see her grabbing him and saying, I hate you, I hate you. Um, I want to hang you. Let, let me do the hanging. I'll do the hanging. Not the town. I'll hang you, and then I'll take you down again and hang you again, and take you down again and hang you again. She doesn't want him to die. Um, and after, you remember, after she's, after Mink's arrested, Ratliff, God bless his soul, Ratliff is the only one to show any concern for a criminal. He, he takes his wife in, Mink's wife in, and the children, to stay with him. None of the Snopes come to visit him. The wife visits him every day. And we know that she's working in a hotel to earn money. It's a legitimate job, and there's a suggestion she's probably doing tricks on the side. And Ratliff's attitude is he doesn't care. She's doing all she can to save. She's like the prostitute in, in Dostoevsky's. Oh, Ratliff? Mink. I don't know, Ducky. What? I don't know where. Mink's attitude. Sorry? Mink's attitude toward his wife. I don't even know where I was now, Doc. <laughs> um, if you look at the Dostoevsky story with Ratliff, Sonia is that she's a prostitute. You know, she, she, has, she has to do what she does for money. Um, here, uh, Mink's wife um, pro seems to prostitute. It's not clear, but the implication is pretty direct. That she's doing that, trying to save money, because they have no money. Um, she wants to contribute to their care, and moreover, she wants to get money because the two of them assume that maybe one day Flem will return, and Flem will get them out of their predicament. If you're reading well, you know Ratliff says it's not going to happen. And Flem um, only comes back when it's of no use anymore. The town and the mansion are going to pick up that theme in spades. It's, it's, it's just going to be a great part of what happens to the rest of the novel. So we see this, um, these, these radical fundamental differences between men and women with respect to love. And both of them are imaged in the cow and the stallion. The cow is a very feminine figure. I woos her, milks her, and the stallion kills Lucy. 
very masculine, and it's it's fitting because it's Houston's horse, because everything about Houston has that fierce animal love of power, that rigid sense of honor. Um, he won't he won't he he will not give that cow back to Mink till Mink pays his money. There's this strong legalistic sense to this honor code that you hold people to. It gets very fierce. So two very different types, feminine, masculine. Very fear, There's a fierceness in both of them. One tends to be very emotional, the other is... It's, it's an aggressive go-get-em. Okay, let's, let me look at some passages here. Let me quickly try to summarize the, the long summer section. It opens with Ratliff passing by um, Varner's place and the two of them on the way to town. Varner has to go here, um, settle a, a suit, a lawsuit. Mink is taking Houston to court to try to get his cow back because Houston won't get it back. You know that over the year, Mink let the cow go. He has no feed on his, he has no money. He couldn't afford it. So he was hoping to get away with letting the cow feed on Houston's land. When the period is over, he goes to get the cow and Houston won't give it to him. Mink takes him to court. Um, Varner finds in favor of Houston. He says Houston can keep the cow until Mink gives him, I think it's $3. And the irony is that there's no way Mink's going to pay that. He has no money. Um, this is going to get darker later, but um, so it's it, right at that moment as the men are leaving court, a young kid comes up and says the show is going on, and they leave the courthouse and go to the back of Little John's, Mrs. Little John's house, and we learn later that um, I O or Lump, I think it's Lump, is has created a peep show. It's like a, the beginnings of pornography. He's made a hole and took, taken away a board so that the men can come and watch what I'm supposing is an act of sodomy between Ike and the cow. Ratliff goes over, Bookwright goes over, Bookwright won't look. Um, and Ratliff finally does look, and I want to get to that. But when we get to that barn side, suddenly there's an interlude, what we've been calling these frames, you know, a frame within a frame. And it's at that point we go to the Ike cow story. And then we get this picture of Ike wooing the cow. When that's over and the, and the cow is returned, finally, we return to the scene where Ratliff comes to the barn, looks in, Bookwright doesn't, looks in and sees it and then takes a nail and hammers it up and says, show's over. And he gets really angry at that point. And it doesn't show, it's a subtle anger, but he's seething. Um, it's all controlled, but he's seething. Um, in the third section, Houston um, comes home to find the cow gone, and we get the story of Houston and his wife, and the man who owns the barn where Ike goes to steal the food. And if you remember, um, that man gets outraged that somebody's stealing his grain, and his only interest is getting reward. So once again, there's this economic value placed. Things are reduced only. The, the, the circumstances of things are, are reduced to their economic worth. 
section three ends with um, Houston believing the only way to cure Ike of his illness is to kill the cow and feed it to him. And the Snopes gather, there's a, it's interesting, it's a, it's a Protestant priest, a minister, who gathers with um, I.O. and Eck to decide together how they're going to come up with the money to pay for the cow because they know that they're going to kill it. And it ends with um, the pastor, the minister, saying he can't contribute, and Ratliff saying he won't contribute because it should go, it should go to the Snopes. And I.O. saying to, is it I.O. or, uh, yeah, I.O. saying to Eck, I think it's $16.80, I've got it, sixteen eighty, whatever it is. He says, it's me and you, but since you've got your wife and three children, there's five of you. So you should pay five times more. <laughs> I hope everybody sees the irony of that, because if you had five times, five dependencies, he should pay five times less. But Io screws him, and Eck doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. And Io argues him that. So we're seeing the way a Snopes will use a family member to manipulate him to his own advantage. So it's the principle of the Snopes always. Well, then it's all based on that honor, pride, hmm. because that's what he uses. Yeah. There are five people who will be shamed. Um, chapter two gives us the um, Houston Mink story. Um, it's a touching story of Lucy Pate trying to help Houston through school and finally Houston running away and taking up with this woman, as I said a minute ago. He finally does come back, and he and Lucy married, but he buys a stallion, and the stallion kills her, and she's dead. And the grieving is fierce and intense. He's alone again. Um, the um, section two of the second chapter is wonderful because there's no preparation. We suddenly get a description of Houston falling out of the saddle. We have no clue, once again, what's going on, and we learn that he was shot by Ike, I mean Mink, and Mink carries him into the brush and buries him, and you know the struggles. The, the dog lump comes after him a couple of times. He has to get rid of him. The, um, when he finally gets back to the body again, the dog attacks him, and he has to fight off the dog until, uh, and he's so late in the day, in the night, that night, that he actually ends up doing what he's doing early morning, and the sheriff finds him and takes him to jail. He tries to kill himself on the way to jail, but unsuccessfully, and, and then in the third section, we see Ratcliffe taking Mrs. Snoke, Mink's wife and children in, and caring for them when nobody else does, and his wife visiting Mink daily, um, and doing what she can to get by. The third section, the final section, ends with Ratcliffe wanting to um, have his horse taken care of, and he takes him into a stall, and he sees Ike, the idiot, huddled against a corner with an effigy of a cow. I think the meaning is they kill the cow. What they have left is an effigy, and that effigy is a substitute. And by the way, think about all the substitutes in this world for love. Images, substitutes, things that don't serve, or that, that serve in place of something better. He's got this effigy and Ratliff is surprised and asks what he did it, and it makes clear that Eck bought him out of sympathy. So at the end of the 
long summer episode, we're, we're, we're seeing a number of things, a number of developments that are important to keep in mind. One is we've gone more deeply into the masculine feminine character of things. One of them is through the Ike Wooling, and that's a parody to make us aware of what normal relationships lack today. One of the ways in which we see our faults is have them parody, exaggerated in an opposite way so that we can learn to see those things that we've got accustomed to looking past. We just don't see them very well. So everything about the Ike episode shows us something about love that we've lost. And it's important to remember that. Think about this. I, 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 we won't, probably won't have time to go into it. I want to just read a couple of passages. But think about what happens in that. When that scene opens, we're, we're given a description of the lover. He's sitting there in the underbrush, in nature, waiting for the beloved. For anything we know, it's going to be Eula or some woman or Houston's wife. We don't know. And there are these lush descriptions of the undergrowth and the beauty. It's as it, it's, it's we're taken back to the Arcadian world in Greece with shepherds and shepherdesses. You expect the lover to take a wreath and put it on the head of the woman. And the beauty of it is repeated again and again. And, and then finally, something gives a hint. It's the, I think, the glint off the horn or something or a hoof. And we realize it's not a woman, it's a cow. That he's, the beloved is a cow. And then if you watch it, you see not only what you would hope a man would do with a woman and a woman would do with a man, but it doesn't happen. It's an idiot with a cow. We're seeing in Ike what we saw in Benji. The, the instinctive, this is Dante, by the way, instinctive love is never wrong. Never wrong. This is Dante. Natural love is never wrong. When our intellect gets in the way, we do something with those loves to screw it up. And if you watch the men and women in this story, it's their heads that get in the way. The excuses, the arguing, the justifying. Instinctive love is never wrong. Why? Because God made us good. So everything he does is an expression of a love for another. And watch it. When he first pursues the cow, what does she do? Runs away. When he pursues her again, what does she do? Goes away. When he finally gets her, he decorates her, um, and he woos her, he feeds her, he takes care of her, dresses her. He goes home to work. While he's working, what does he do? He's got his mind on her. I, I can't think of a man, I mean, I know myself, you know, back when I was in high school and co college when I, when I met Suzanne, I can remember hours when my mind would be wondering, what is she doing? You know, what's, I mean, I, it's hard for me to believe that most of us, when we were young like that, when we should have been putting our mind somewhere else, we were thinking about the person we loved instead of doing our work. What's he doing while he's working? Thinking about his beloved. Suddenly he sees smoke out the window. What does he do? In terror, runs after her. He rescues her. He rescues her. And knowing, knowing that he's been chased away, because remember Houston caught him once and chased him, now he has to try to save her. I mean, he rescued her. He did, saved her. But now he's got to protect her from everyone else. He goes off. And there's this description of the three of them, the sun and the two of them, fading in the sunset. So what Faulkner's giving us are the stages of a courtly romance, traditionally. Offering your love, having it rejected, offering it again, um, coming together, um, 
decorating her, feeding her, in danger, rescuing her. I mean, you, I, I don't know how you guys find it, but I, I mean, it was hard. For, I was touched the first time I, when I, and I saw what he was doing. I thought, holy cow. And all of this, of course, is a parody. It's showing us what we would hope would go on between men and women, and doesn't. Um, okay, let me, let me quickly read through some passages. Turn to one. Any questions before we... I want to I look at some passages as we go up, but any... Any questions about? I have a question. Yeah. So do you think, uh, so back in The Sound and the Fury, Jason, his anger towards um, the sister. Caddy? Caddy. And then Jody's anger towards Yuma. Do you see there's a parallel? I Jody's anger and his feelings towards Eula reminded me of Jason to hmm. Caddy. I, I wouldn't have put the two together, Giovanni, but I, but I think you're right in this sense. Both of them are men. And both of them, I mean, they're, they're not described in the same way, but they're both bachelors to the core. They don't, you know, they're, they're almost, there's, there's something anti-loving. They don't want to love. They don't want to be with a woman. But there's a fundamental difference between the two of them, so that I'd have a hard time. But, but clearly they're they're not comfortable with the feminine. The feminine is other, and Jason hates everything. I mean, he he hates everything. Um, he he blames Caddy for not for losing the job, which is mistaken because that you didn't lose it for that reason. Um, is it Jody's upholding the southern honor. Or? That's certainly a part of everything that goes on in this. Um, at, it, it, interesting for me, I would say Jason uses that more as an excuse than a real thing. Quentin lives it, trying to save that honor. I don't, I don't think Jason has that sense of honor. He's just too selfish. But anyway, the difference, the difference between Jason and um, Jody is that Jody is a brother and I think he's embarrassed because, he, as a brother, he, the, the, just the touching of his sister because she's so sexual undoes him. And yet, there's a line in here, I'll read it in a minute. There's something, the, the, one, of the Protestant, one of the premises of the Protestant mind in Calvin, it's a little bit there in Luther, but certainly in Calvin, is the depravity of the body. The body is a bad thing. And you get this fierceness. That's why, the, I, that's one of the reasons the Ike episode to me is so touching. Because there's no shame. I mean, it's you know, it's a wooing. Jody cannot stand to be touched by her or to touch her. Um, he has her put on a corset. To, it's almost more a protection for him than for Jason. Is just mean and um, mechanical. Um, Jody's got something human in him, but as a brother, he just there's something. Puritan and um, and more liable to be embarrassed because he knows he has to do it for for Don's you know for the sake of the family honor that he does he's so ashamed to think that when she walks across this space that all these men would line up to gawk at her that is such a shame to um, I think that's something he feels Jason doesn't have much of a heart okay so the anger's different. 
It's an anger. I mean, both of them have it, but the motives behind it, it's neat. the character of it, I think, is a little bit different in each. When, um, page 179, when the men come out of the court and they get the news that, that Mink lost, this is Ratliff at the top of 179. Well, well, Ratliff said, well, well, so Will couldn't do nothing to the next succeeding Snopes but stop him from talking. I.O. was the, def- the prosecuting attorney, and as soon as he started to talk, Varner shut him up. Interesting. I, this, is, this, is, this is, to me, a perplexing exchange because we don't get much. Everything's hinted at. I offer this just as a suggestion. We know that, that Varner sold out, and by doing that, he put Snopes in a position almost over him. He has so much control. His, his daughter now is married to Snopes. So Snopes has it all over. Snopes forced him to do something. Nobody forces Varner to do. So Snopes has got it all over Varner. He goes into court to settle. He settles against Snopes, one of his family now. I think he does because he has to. You know, the Houston's got a claim. But he doesn't let the prosecuting attorney even speak. He just shuts him up. Um, so it's a, it's a puzzling scene to me why he does that. I, that's my guess that he's just irritated with all of it. But Ratliff says, um, not that any more would have any done, have done any good Snopes can come and Snopes can go, but Will Varner looks like he's fixing to Snopes forever. He's one of them now. He's tied with them. Or Varner will Snopes forever. Take your pick. I don't know that there's really a choice between them. Um... Bookrise says, quiet down, they may hear you. Go down a little bit. Um, and then Ratliff parodies I.O. If you remember, I.O. always speaks in platitudes. That is, I.O. does no thinking. All of his thinking is done for him. He just speaks in platitudes. It's the way, this, um, what's his name? I can't remember his name. The, one of the great writers of our time from England wrote this book on um, English language, Orwell, George Orwell, um, where he said one of the dangers of language in the workplace is that workplace creates these phrases mm-hmm. and they become so well used that they, they become a substitute for real thought. Mm-hmm. We, autom- we step into this stuff automatically and don't even realize we're losing our ability to think. You know how much I believe that. I mean, you Ratliff's playing on this right now because what he's doing is parodying I.O. because I.O. I.O. only speaks in platitudes. If you'd stand closer to the door, he could hear you a heat better, he said. Surely, Ratliff said, big ears have little pictures. The world beats a trap to the rich man's hog pen, but it ain't every family has a new lawyer, not to mention a prophet. Waste not, want not, except for a fool. That he could come up with it, that Faulkner could come up. I mean, I'm just amazed at Faulkner's writing. Because he'll do this with Faulkner now, he'll do it with I.O. Just to, an amazing grasp, what an ear he had to hear things, and a memory to hold on to them. Waste not, want not, except at a full waste, don't need no prophet to prophecy, a prophet, and just whose? <laughs> it started to make less and less sense. Now they were all watching him, the smooth, impenetrable face with something about the eyes and the lines beside the mouth which they could not read. Look here, Bookwright said, what's the matter with you? 
why nothing, Ratliff said. What could be wrong with nothing, nowhere, nohow in this here best of all possible worlds? He's furious. He's absolutely furious. And, and the lineup of those negatives with nothing, nowhere, nohow in this best of all possible... Likely the same folks that sells him the neckties will have a pair of long black stockings too. And any sign painter can paint him a screen set up alongside the bed to look like looking up at a wall full of store shelves of canned goods. Stop for a second here. Rat Faulkner's having Ratliff parody language and the way language helps people hide. Not only I.O., but the people. Um, because nobody's doing anything. They're just staying where they are. It's almost like they don't have a language. Nobody can step out of it. Um, and the image that he uses next is almost a giveaway. If you remember the scene, he, he describes a painter painting this mural of the shelves and describes, describes this young woman coming in for a can of lard, I think, and then paying the money and then going and lying down behind the counter looking up at the shelves. And he says, she, she's never tasted them. She can't tell the difference between a real one or a false one. Where are we? That's Plato's cave. That's Plato's cave. She can't tell the difference. And he sets it next to a bed. Whose bed? Fleming Eula's. This is an image of Eula. The, um, the man locks the door. She lies there and she keeps looking at the door because she knows the only way she can get out of the door is sexually to offer herself. It's an image, this is in the bedroom. I think this is an image of the way in which the sexual act that should take place between Flem and Eula is substituted with an economic reality. It's like, a, it's like a tableau of the, of the whole episode. That economic realities have, have taken the place of sexual realities and, and what's at the center of them is this unerotic, machine-like man. The, the danger of modern man is becoming machine-like, unerotic. Efficient, effective, getting it. At the very end of that, um, he describes the guy going to close the door. Um, over on the page 181, the boy comes in to take the men over to Mrs. Yule, um, Little John's to look at the show. Page 181 at the bottom. She never smelled nothing else. Just like a mule don't know it's mule, he smells for the same reason. And the one garment to her name and the one that she's laying there on the floor behind the counter in and looking up past him at the rows of little tight cans with fishes and devils on them that she don't know what's on the inside either because she ain't never had the dime or 15 cents that even if it was given to her, the nickel, not to mention the lard she come after, she would have had after the next two or three times she came in after lard, but just heard something one day, the name of what folks said was inside. She does not know the difference between reality and an appearance. That's Plato's cave. It's Eula, I think. Laying there and looking up at them every time his head would get out of the way long enough, she says, Mr. Snopes, what you ask for them sardines? How does that, 
let me offer this thought because it's a puzzling, to me it's an, it's an allegory of an allegory. It's a picture of the allegory of the cave with the woman on the, behind the counter selling herself, wanting to get out, and knowing the only way she can get out is if she offers herself. And we know that Flem's not going to have sex. He's impotent. She says, um, what you ask for them sardines. Imagine Eula as a 16-year-old girl being married off. She's been married. People get married off. For her to say, what's in them sardines? What you ask for them? What, what? It's as if she still thinks there's something worth having in a marriage. What is it? She still thinks there's something worth having, and she asks what's the price for it, as if there's no other way to talk about what goes on in a marriage or sexually except money. And then you know we get the courtship scene. Let me stop. I'm open to any other readings, because that to me is a really complex scene, but I think what I, what can't, I, I don't think what's in question is Ratliff's anger. He is furious. He's seen, wait, wait, let's just, he's just seen Eula sold off. The court decision has gone against him, and he knows that something's heading over to a peep show. And he's watching this all unfold, and like the vision of um, phlegm in hell, it's like where he got, where he saw evil, the, the usurping nature that it undoes itself, which is what part of the power of that for me. He understands that evil will finally undo itself. How it's going to undo itself in the story we'll have to see, but he sees that. And then he has this little allegory here um, where he sh- gives us this image of a woman who has to um, offer herself to get out. One of the things that I've observed is that uh, a lot of things are unsaid and a lot of things, the narrative is not that descriptive in many cases. You have to kind of fill in the blanks yourself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So true. Dickens would never do that. I've been seeing that more and more as I yeah. go Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It asks us to think a lot. It, Dickens will hold our hand. Wagner will present a thing. I mean, it, which is close to reality? I mean, so often we go through life, things take place in front of us all the time. How often do we stop and actually think? You know, you see, some, for instance, sometimes I'll see a man, I think about this, this gesture that Jane Austen describes with um, the, the youngest sister holding her arm out of carriage, sort of dangling it arrogantly, probably because she's going to be married. I can't remember her name, sorry, with an L. Um, and every once in a while, I'll be driving down the street and I'll see Lydia. a, a huh? Lydia. 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 Yeah. yeah. I'll see an arm, and very and sometimes it's a man's arm, and I look at a man's arm with that same sort of effeminate. There's so much in a gesture, a word, a look. How many of us take the time? And not all, almost all of Henry James' novels came from a gesture. If you ever read a Henry you know you're in for it for a couple of weeks. Um, a gesture. It's like every gesture, every face tells a story. How do we take the time to see it? So with Faulkner, he'll give a gesture or a line or something, and we have to put it all together, what's going on, to see what's... We have to think about it, something. 
here on page 182, just very, very briefly. One eighty-two at the bottom. Then he would hear her coming down the creek side in the mist. He would not be after one hour, two hours, three. The dawn would be empty. The moment and she would not be. Then he would hear and he would lie drenched in the wet grass, serene and one and indivisible in joy, listening to her approach. One of the most important things to take away, I'm going to read a couple of passages where, the, where he describes music. If you look at what happens in all the other scenes involving the men and women, there is some way, particularly with the men, in which they are outside of time, at odds with nature, at odds with it, dominating it, wrecking. It's like Melville in Moby Dick with you know the attacking and um, violently trying to master it. The feminine is far more one with nature. When man loves, he's in accord with nature when he loves. If, he's, if he lives with a God of love, when he acts in love, he will be one with that and one with nature. That's a given. Everything he does here is one with nature. When you watch Ike work, serene and one and indivisible in joy, listening to her approach, he would smell her, the whole mist reeked with her, the same malleate hands of mist Hands of mist, which drew along his prone drenched flanks, palped her pearled barrel too and shaped them both somewhere in immediate time, already married. They're one, and they're perfectly one with the nature around him. He would not move, he would lie amid the waking instant of Earth's teeming, minute life, the motionless fronds of water heavy grasses stooping into the midst before his face in black fixed curve along each parabola of which the marching drops held in minute magnification the dawn's rosy miniature, smelling and even tasting the rich, slow, warm, barn reek, milk reek, the flowing immemorial... This is, let me put this different. He's not in an abstraction of his head, what I've been saying moderns that too often we do. He's not in an idea... After Descartes, we live in ideas. That's the whole. It's one of the modern disorders. I've said, we live in ideas, and we get self-righteous because once we get an idea in our head, how easily can anybody shake it? Somebody confronts us with it. There it is. Certain. I mean, we're certain. We live with ideas, and there should be a question whether that idea is really in conformity with reality or not. There's nothing abstract here. Read those lines, and you see one with all this stuff going on in nature. Anyway, you know she comes, and he goes after her, she flees, and he goes after her again, she flees again. Turn to page 198. Bottom of the page. While the afternoon wind had fallen, the shaggy cresto made a constant murmuring sound in the high serene air. The trunks and the massy foliage were the harps and strings of afternoon. There's a music. Remember I told you about the um, music of the spheres in Shakespeare? Do you all remember the music of the spheres? Mm -hmm. it's, each of the orbits has its own sound and all together produced. And it's a mystical experience. You can't hear it with your senses. You can only intellect it. This is the analogy of that in nature. The trunks and the massy foliage were the harps and strings of afternoon. 
The bard, in constant shadow of the day's retrograde, flowed steadily over them as they crossed the bridge and descended into shadow. They are one with nature. Entities, your bowl of evening, the windless well of night, the portcullis of summer. It's almost like a banquet. Bowls and things around them that are um, going over in um, 200, <clears throat> middle of the page. Now he watches the recurrence of that which he discovered for the first time three days ago, that dawn light is not decanted onto earth from the sky, but instead is from the earth itself suspired, roofed by the woven canopy of blind annealing grass roots and the roots of trees, dark in the blind dark of time silt and rich refuse. The constant and unslumbering anonymous worm glut and the inextricable known bones, Troy's Helen and the nymphs and the snoring mitered bishops, the saviors and the victims and the king. It wakes up seeping, attritive in uncountable creeping channels, first root, then frond by frond, it goes on. Ordinarily, we think of light as coming from the sky. Fogner's saying light is coming from the earth. Why? Because it's where all the dead are. It's like a spirit of life is emanating from the earth, and they're one with it. So, although what we find in almost everything else going on, particularly with the men, is men ravaging the earth, here the lovers are one with it, and earth is, it's almost like it's responding by giving off this light. All the dead souls. Going over... Um, um, 205. They've been walking all day. Ike is trying to protect her now from a from anybody that would take her, Houston or the, the farmer who owns the barn where he steals the food. They walk in splendor, joined by the golden skein of the wet grass rope. They move in single file toward the ineffable effulgence directly into the sun. They are still pacing it. They mount the final ridge. They will arrive together. At the same moment, all three of them cross the crest and descend into the bowl of evening and are extinguished. The two lovers with the sun. What are we to think of this moment? And I'll leave it up to you, a coupling. I, I, the, oh, the closest parallel I have in all of literature is that moment. Those of you who have done the Homer know it. Remember in the Odyssey, after the battle when um, it, um, Odysseus and Penelope go to bed, they go to bed and it says, Athena, stop time. That's not a small moment, because if you look at the whole epic, the whole remember, we talked about the whole epic, the epic world exists in a past. You cannot get free of the suffering. The only ones to do it in that are not Menelaus and his wife, not Nestor and his wife. It's Odysseus and Penelope because of all the struggling that they've gone through to hold true to their vows. So the battles, the endurance, the giving up, all lead to this moment when finally they come to bed and Athena stops time. There's something of that kind of significance. I, I don't, Faulkner doesn't say, I mean, Don described it perfectly. At that same moment, all three of them cross the crest and descend into the bowl of evening and are extinguished. What happens? I don't. Timeless moment. I don't. I don't know. But go over to two thirty-six. We're going to stop in just a couple minutes.
236. This is the Houston um, Lucy Pate story when he goes west with this woman. Middle of the page, 235. Although she had never suggested it, he even thought of marrying her, so, so had the impact of the West, which was still young enough then to put a premium on individuality, softened and at last abolished his inherited Southern provincial Protestant fanaticism regarding marriage and female purity. This hatred of the flesh, the biblical Magdalene. Um, Um, on page 236, <clears throat> this hatred of the flesh is so much a part of Houston's character. For me, it's no accident that Lucy is killed by a stallion. In one sense, that's, I think, symbolical of this fierce hatred of the flesh and marriage that Houston's had all along. At the top of 236, at first that he... That eventuality had never occurred to him. Here again was that old mystical fanatical Protestant, the hand of God lying upon the sinner even after the regeneration, the Babylonian interdict by heaven forever against reproduction. Um, he's going to leave. This is just before he decides to leave and return um, home. At the bottom of the page, the woman who had been his wife for seven years glanced once more at the money and then stood cursing it. You're going to get married, she said. There were no tears. She just cursed him. What do you? What do I want with money? There, God wants to buy her off. You know, I mean, here's this this thing with men again and women. And look at her response. What What do I want with money? Look at me. Do you think I will lack money? Let me go with you. There will be some town, some place close where I can live. You can come when you want to. Have I ever bothered you? No, he said. She cursed him, cursing them both. He leaves. You know that. Let me take just one more um, on page 260. I think it's 262. Actually, it's 265. This is the big story after he buried Houston. Um, and he goes to the store and he's with Lump, and Lump tells him that his wife was trying to get a hold of him. And he goes to Varner. Remember, Lucy, I mean, his wife left him. She's at Varner. And there's a question whether she turned a trick. Um, Mink insinuates that. Um, at the bottom of the page, 164, let's see. It describes the first time they had sex. Remember, she was, she was, the, she was a kept woman herself. <coughs> um, in this um, logging camp, where convicts were, were brought in to work and the, the, the man and woman who ran the camp gave birth to a girl and eventually as she got older, she was used to serve the men. It was, it was a part of this business enterprise. And um, she finally has sex with Mink at the bottom of 264. She said, I've had a hundred men, but I never had a wasp before. That stuff comes out of you as rank poison. It's too hot. It burns itself in my seed both up. I'll, ne I'll never make a kid. A couple of years later, they have a child. Now, 265. So this is an interlude. Again, 
when he arrives at Barnard, he pictures her coming out of the house, and that picture takes him back to that time when he first saw her. We get the backstory of Mink's wife, um, used as a kept woman for these men. And then it returns to the present, where at Varner's place again, and she comes out on page 265. The bottom of the page, wait, he said, you fool, she said in that harsh, panting whisper, you fool. Oh, God damn you, God damn you. He began to struggle with a cold, condensed fury, which did not seem quite able or perhaps ready to emerge yet from his body. Then he laughed suddenly out, still not at her, but to break her grip. But she held him with both hands now as they faced each other. Why didn't you go that night? God, I thought, of course, you were going to get out as soon as I left. She shook him savagely with no more effort than if he were a child. Why didn't you? Why in hell didn't you? On what, he said. Where, Lump said. I know you didn't have any money. Like I know you haven't had anything to eat except dust, the dust in that barrel. You could have hidden in the woods anywhere until I would have had time to. God damn you, God damn you. If they would have just let me do the hanging, she shook him, her face bent to his, her hard, hot, panting breath on his face. Not for the killing, but for doing it when you had no money to get away on if you ran, and nothing to eat if you stayed. If they just let me do it, hang you just enough to take you down and bring you to, and hang you again just enough to cut you down and bring... Um... There it is again, I mean, like the other woman in here, absolutely constant. Minka's killed somebody, she knows, she knows that. Um, um, her love is undeviating. And you know what happens here, um, Lump comes up again, they go to the house. Lump wants to stall, believing that in time he'll break him down, even, they even play checkers. Um, but it's to all uh, no avail. And it's interesting, on page 272, when Lump is trying to persuade him, he said, the very top, it's just simple business matter. Simple business. A man's been killed. His only concern is to get the $50 out of him. So let me stop here just quickly to try to put this together. In the Flem episode, we get the Snopes beginning to take over, and this new principle enter into this agrarian community and slowly transform it. In the Eula section, we get this image of an extraordinarily beautiful sexual woman and the effect she has on this men. So the whole problem of sexuality enters the story then. And what we see is not only the lust that awakens, but finally what happens um, when she gets pregnant, that she is sacrificed for this male honor code and this sense of one-upman on another person. And Flem takes advantage of it, the way he does everything else, and marries her. In the long summer, we get a closer look at the sexual relationships again between Houston and Lucy, and Houston and the, the, the kept woman, between Mink and his wife, and, um, and, and a man killing another man, Mink killing Houston. So we move from this comic treatment of this f funny exchange, this honor code and the, this instinct for one-upping another and, and, and rising, getting ahead, how important that is to be better than somebody to get ahead. Given its comic treatment in the beginning, and now we're seeing the dark side of it. And we're also seeing the dark 
underlying sexual implications of it for men and women. So in the Hamlet, we've moved from a very comic treatment of it, particularly with Ab and Pat Stamper, because that was so funny, and now more and more darkly. We have one more section to go. We'll finish it next week. The next one is called The Peasants. The opening scene Faulkner wrote as a short story. It's called Spotted Horses. And I don't remember which came first. Um, I have the feeling the short story came first and he incorporated because it's perfect. Um, lots is going to happen. It's a short section, so there's not much to read. But in the, in the Spotted Horses section, the opening section of the, the last one, section of the, the peasants, remember this. The opening section with Flynn began with just Jody and Ab and Ab and Pat Stamper. It's just these isolated things going on. And the funniest was this story between Ab and Pat Stamper. I mean, that was long. That was one of those long Southern anecdotes. It went on forever. And it was funny and stupid. At the end, we're watching a whole community. There are hundreds of men. This <laughs> Flam comes back from where? Texas with this Texan. I mean, one of the things you come away from the story is beware of Texans. <laughs> In this whole trading deal, beware of Texans. Um, Flem returns finally. Um, Eula had returned before, and he comes in with his Texan, bringing in this whole herd of wild, wild horses. And you know from the very beginning that there's some, I don't know, it's like addiction with pornography today, that Men with horse, like men with cars today, you know, that, that they couldn't look at a horse without seeing it as, as a potential for a bargain or wanting to get one up on somebody. Well, here's a whole herd of them come in, brought into town to auction off. And it's not just one man or two, it's an entire community. And you have to watch this Texan <laughs> work these men. So we've moved from a very small scale to a very large scale, and and Ratliff's going to play. Ratliff's going to face a real trial at this last section, so you have to see what happens. Okay. So, see you all next week. <laughs>